Welcome to a rare Saturday edition of the Weekend IndyCar Listener Q&A episode here in the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Normally, we are recording this, friends, on a Monday evening. Uh, it's been a week, not a bad week, just a crazy, busy week with our wedding anniversary yesterday. Lot of deliverables for clients, both web, uh, magazine, even book. We'll talk about the book thing later. Uh, just been a crazy, crazy week where getting to the podcast has been pushed and pushed. And here we are, Saturday morning. Uh, I am Marshall Pruitt. Love doing this, all powered by you, the questions you send in each week. Love the fact that we have a bunch of longtime listeners who participate and new listeners, those who send in questions for the first time, if not every week, definitely every other week. So just love the momentum we continue to build here. Got our cat, Rosie, on the left. She is staring at me. Got our other cat, Rocky, on the right, who just had a birthday. He is sleeping. They're normal companions. They sometimes act up. You might hear them on the show. My wife is resting as well. So here we are, beautiful Saturday morning. Going to get rolling with your questions in just a moment. A couple little fun, interesting bits to mention. So last weekend, ended up spending both days down at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca for the Velocity Invitational Vintage Racing event. Brand new event. Quite interesting what they're trying to do there. Trying to set something up somewhat like the Goodwood of America. And I think they came close in many ways, some pretty big failures in some others, but was not expecting to be there last weekend, was planning to be there on Friday, have the weekend free to get caught up on a lot of those things I mentioned that were work deliverables, ended up spending both days down there, pushed things back quite a bit, but there was one fun thing to come from it. And I don't know if you happen to believe in the Lord, believe in whomever, if you are non-faith-based, but you believe in karma, whatever it is. Fun little story here. So back in August, interviewed our pal Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren Racing, mentioned that they would be sending a bunch of cars, F1 cars, to this Velocity event. And so said, hey, great, let's do some in-car camera stuff. Let's, let's go get it. Do some great stuff that I normally do. When I go down to these vintage events or wherever they might be, we always do tons of them, visor cam or just static in-car cameras. Put my little audio recorder in, the high-quality audio recorder. It's fairly small. GoPro audio is terrible. I'm not picking on them. Just I try and throw in that audio recorder, overlay that on top of the video. That's where you get a quality viewing experience. Great, let's do it. Go, go, go. Get closer to the event. Same thing. Got my big case with all my GoPros that I've bought over the years, all the audio recorders I bought over the years, all charged up, ready to go, get down there Saturday morning, and I'm told no way in hell. And quite interesting, not from Zach, but from a, uh, I'll leave the person's name out of it, but a, a somewhat senior person from McLaren. Absolutely impossible. Cannot do this. I say, hmm, interesting. Uh, tell me about that. Well, First of all, cannot place anything on any of these vintage F1 cars that does not belong to McLaren. So they had a 2011 
Jensen Button, Lewis Hamilton car MP426, I believe, one of the, the last blown diffuser cars. That's actually a car owned by a friend by the name of Charlie Nierberg, former IndyCar driver. So Charlie owns that, but okay, you're claiming that you own all these cars. Got it. Mika Hakkinen's 1998 Formula One World Championship winning MP4 13. Might have seen videos, photos, and whatnot of our man Pato O'Ward driving that. There was the old two-seater F1 car from that same kind of 98-ish period. Then Zach's, Zach Brown, owns a 2012 McLaren MP4 27. Happened to be the car where Lewis Hamilton won his last two races for McLaren in. Four cars, three of them truly interesting, the two-seater not so much. The middle one as well, the, uh, the 1998 F1 car, also owned by someone else. So while being run by McLaren, the actual ownership of the vehicles, three individuals, one of them being Zach Brown, other one Charlie Nierberg, the car that Pato drove, someone else. Nonetheless, I'm told not a single thing can be placed on the car that does not belong to McLaren and was looked at honestly friends like i was the like boo boo the fool the biggest idiot in the world for asking could we place one of my small little cube gopros on the 1998 car could we put my little small kind of size of a deck of cards audio recorder inside the cockpit somewhere gentleman who was in charge of all the vehicles kind of the crew chief as well looked at me almost sideways like his head seemingly almost exploded when I asked if those things were possible, as if I was saying, could we fly to the moon with this Formula One car? So after standing there and being thoroughly dressed down about the lunacy of my requests, being told no possible way we could do this, also was told, again, this is fun stuff. We're talking about GoPros here, right? Things that get put on F1 cars all the time, especially during uh, off-season testing and whatnot. Uh, well, none of these have been validated. None of them have been benchmarked. We don't know how they would perform. And I'm sitting here going like, really? Like the little GoPro with the sticky pad where you just go and it sticks on the car and then you go do the laps anyways. And so it's this whole big histrionics. And truly, I'm starting to love it as I'm getting this massive pushback. Um, I said to both of them while holding the little cube GoPro in one hand and my little audio recorder in the other, I said, would it change your opinion? Would it make any difference if you knew both of these have been on cars that I've placed at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway at the 24 hours of Le Mans, uh, 24 hours of Daytona, Sebring, here, this year, I did a four angle no was it four cameras i think on the marshank racing 06 that elu castroneves drove right one on the nose one looking back two in the rear wing end plates right so all stayed on the car no issues whatsoever would any of that change your opinion here and again no absolutely shut down just head shaking like you are the biggest moron we've ever met so getting to the crescendo here was then told the final reason we couldn't do this health and safety for those listening in the u.s that phrase might not mean much if you've been to the uk or if you're from the uk you know exactly what i'm getting at it's kind of a a, a general term 
hey, that area in the subway is is closed off. Uh, don't go there. Health and safety, health and safety. Hey, don't do this. Health and safety, health and safety. I get the, well, we also could not possibly put your camera on any of the cars for health and safety. What? Well, what if it were to fall off uh, and, and strike someone or hit another car? And then we would be liable for that. So there's no possible way, health and safety, health and safety. Friends, for those of you who saw the in-car footage that I posted of Pato in that beautiful Mika Hakkinen World Championship winning 1998 McLaren MP4 13A at WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca, who are wondering, huh, that didn't seem like a very long clip. It also maybe didn't seem like we saw the best of him in the car. Why was that? If any of you had that question, well, I got an answer. Car comes back and the, the person who was running things said, well, we'll give you the footage if you bring a USB stick. Okay. Again, far from optimal. The audio is going to be crap, but uh, if that's all you're willing to let me do, well, there you go. Uh, Pato comes back, car cools down a little bit. I walk up about a half hour later with my USB stick in hand, ask the person if I could have the footage, and they looked back at me in somewhat uh, shock, terror, and otherwise. Walks over to one of the mechanics. I hear them confer very quickly, come back, and was told, unfortunately, our GoPro did not come back with the car. <laughs> ah, Look, I'm petty, y'all. I'm petty. You want to dick me around? for I don't know how many minutes it took, but uh, truly, I was dressed down, spoken to like the biggest moron ever for even asking if I could put one of my GoPros on the car or the audio recorder inside the cockpit or whatever else. Health and safety, health and safety, and what happens after two laps? Their effing GoPro flies off the car. You should see the footage of it starting to, the tape starting to peel, and it starts to look up. And you see the sky, and then you see a little bit of the engine cover, then you see the back of the car, then it spins around and does this, and it flips around and looks over here and over there, and you start to hear it going clunk, 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 as it's bouncing around on the bodywork, and then it goes for a 150-mile-an-hour launch off the side of the thing, and you just watch the footage of it going... Sky ground, sky ground, sky ground into a uh, gravel runoff, dirt runoff, and and lands face down. So while you get no footage whatsoever, you do get audio of Pato going around the track. So uh, health and safety, y'all. Just uh, seriously, I didn't, it, the person... I wanted to say health and safety. I wanted to say that so bad, but I did hold back. Uh, oh my gosh, that was sweet justice of like, really? Because trust me, if I had installed my GoPro, it would not have come off. I have done hundreds of these on the fastest and slowest cars. Uh, I've figured out how to make them stay on the car. Uh, anyways, so that's why I only got two laps. Pato's best laps do not exist uh with any sort of in-car unfortunately last thing to close this little tale then we'll get going with your q a 
also, the one thing the person did say was, well, if you can find it, you're welcome to the footage. And uh, I called in a favor with a friend of mine who's one of the senior leaders of WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca and said, hi, I realize you are in the middle of running an event and have far more important things to do. But during the next break between sessions, if you could send out a call to the corners and to the corner workers to say, hi, if you saw it, please let us know, please grab it. Or if you didn't, if you could just make a cursory look through the runoff areas, there's actually some pretty important footage here of Pato Awards run in this world championship winning McLaren. About an hour later, someone turned up with it. It was a beautiful thing. The, the thing was just ratted, just destroyed. And yet the footage survived. So that was my fun little story of comeuppance, health and safety, whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah, too bad. Too, too bad that uh, just silly dickish attitudes ruled the day because they certainly didn't need to and we would have had much better footage than what they captured uh, had we uh, been able to do it ourselves so let's roll in a little music bed here uh, did speak with a indycar driver this morning i'm not sure exactly where i'm going to fit this in information wise but uh, they they had some plans in place and it looks like those plans have changed for the negative so that's uh, That was a call that I had just before we were on the phone here. Someone that I was thinking was going to have a pretty cool little ride. Uh, that's not coming together, but uh, they're going to keep pursuing. So as soon as I have more concrete details to offer, I will certainly offer that. But till then, why don't we get rolling with your Q's and your A's. Also had some fun confirmation stuff since our last podcast, Kyle Kirkwood being one of them and few more things that are pretty cool so they are leading uh leading some of your questions here but to start got philip schmitz wanting to know about last weekend says it's not an indycar question i guess how is it to hear the sound of the old mclarens at laguna seca last weekend weird to say that a 2011 or 2012 mclaren is old indeed philip i was never a fan of the v8 era in terms of sound just never did anything for me and that's because it was preceded by a v10 era uh, that's what was powering the uh, MP413 that Pato drove. It just made me smile and giggle, Phil, because it's been a long time since I'd heard the V10s run in person. I think the Montreal Grand Prix, Canadian Grand Prix in 2000, was there engineering a Formula Atlantic car. And so got to see and hear up close the last time those uh, V10s yet. So it's been, what, 21 years or so? And it was delightful. So while I mentioned that the in-car audio from the GoPro was garbage, one thing I did was take two of my highest quality audio recorders, place one exiting turn 11, so that's the uh, final corner leading on to the main straightaway, the pit straight at Laguna. Then I put a second one with me at the top of pit lane, right beneath the uh, the flagger's stand, the starter stand. And so I have, I would say, pretty happy uh, future ambient audio podcast coming of Charlie, Pato, and Zach blasting out of turn 11, a lot of wheel spin and you name it kind of fun stuff, and then a bunch of uh, flybys 
at the top of pit lane with their cars screaming like mad. So it was a beautiful thing to witness in person, Philip, obviously, to hear. And then I also wanted to capture that for us so we can uh, giggle inside as well uh, with a future ambient audio release. Casey Kirkstra says, MP, best to you and your wife and the cats. Saw your article about Pato Ward driving the McLaren at Laguna. Did this count as his test for the team? Uh, no. Um, driving a 23-year-old Formula One car for eight laps at Laguna Seca would not count as his Formula One test. Uh, it's always been about testing a modern car here at Abu Dhabi later in the year. Uh, you asked, does he need a super license for the test? No. The, uh, the young driver's test is meant to be truly an evaluation. It's been going on for years in Formula One that they've allowed to do. So all is pretty straightforward there. Our pal Hrisha Deshbond is up. You are P3 on the question list as put together by our dear pal Jim Kaiser. So, hey, MP, really intrigued to see Pato in the MP413. He was faster than his IndyCar qualifying lap time. So as I understand that it was a different track, track conditions were different, temperatures were different, etc. It was surprising to see that a late 90s F1 car was faster. What were your impressions of comparing the two? Big item here. Had a lot of folks talking about this and in a critical way of IndyCar. And I understand that. I just posted straight fact of Pato's lap time, best lap time that I got at least in the uh, the 98 McLaren being a 110.3 in his best qualifying lap from September in his Air McLaren SP Chevy being nine tenths off. 111.2, I believe is what it was. I know that led to a lot of criticism of IndyCar. What the heck? Come on, man. You're sl- seriously slower than a 20-plus-year-old Formula One car? Yeah, couple things to keep in mind here and these are, are these are not excuses these are facts looking at the weights of the two vehicles right and I did actually do a little bit of checking here because I wanted to get some proper numbers for you Hrishi. so if you compare the McLaren uh, I believe it's minus driver but with fuel and Pato's car uh, with fuel minus his weight, almost 400 pounds of difference, uh, 377 pounds lighter. It's a formula one car per my math. And that might even be off, uh, if not significantly off the thing that makes the old F one car faster than a current IndyCar is definitely the weight. Now, we know that there's a significant conceptual difference between a Formula One car of that era, even today's era, and an IndyCar. That being, Formula One cars do not race on ovals. Therefore, the extreme levels of safety cladding anti-intrusion panels all the weight just the bulk and size and and strength of an indy car to take a 230 mile an hour hit and protect its driver massively different than a featherweight formula one car 
So even though we're talking something that's 20 plus years older, power wise, that three liter V10 Mercedes makes 50 ish to a hundred horsepower more, right? These are coming from unlimited budgets back then budgets that still, even in today's world were staggering. You look at a Delar DW12 with its Chevy or Honda engine, everything that makes it what it is. These are not vehicles built with unlimited funds that are not light as a feather, just real serious polar opposite design philosophies. So when I look at what he was able to do in the old McLaren, and I have no doubt he would have been many seconds faster, uh, five, three, four, five, maybe even more given time. Pato said, uh, not privately, but after climbing out of the car and, and giving a, a pretty good download that it's not set up in any way, shape, or form for Laguna Seca. Uh, in any way. If they were able to spend time to tune the car, he could definitely extract a ton more. Then there was the, this is worth a lot of money, doesn't belong to me, and I can't crash it. And so there were those safety margins built into his lapping, Krishi. Nonetheless, we have a car that makes 50 to 100 horsepower more than a current Indy car. According to Pato, who I guess would know, uh, the downforce levels are similar, uh, so there's not a lot of difference there. Tires, obviously back in the day running on the groove tires, running on very good Avon slicks uh, for his run here. A couple things to note. But I would say the biggest thing we can't get away from, this is why the F1 car is so much faster. And again, I know he only went nine tenths, but he would have been crazy fast. The lack of weight, the thing accelerates so much faster, plus having that extra horsepower. Brakes so ridiculously late because it doesn't have all that mass that it needs to, uh, to slow down. Corners like mad because it doesn't have all that extra weight to try and manage and uh and whatnot it's a game changer in terms of vehicular performance so if you were to bolt 400 plus pounds onto that mclaren it would still do things better than the indy car because again this thing is built like there was an unlimited budget but we would still have something where you go oh, okay yeah weight boy it's it's not just a great equalizer, it's kind of a concept killer. So there are reasons why our cars are as heavy as they are, purely about safety. Also, well, there's also a cost aspect to it as well. But even if money was no object, we would still have cars that were significantly heavier than an F1 car. But that's the main thing. Uh, but boy, it was just fun to watch something accelerate like a rocket, not just because it had that, extra the extra ponies in the engine bay but just there is something truly something to watch and appreciate when you see a high-powered vehicle that lacks weight it's just <laughs> it's a totally different experience uh let's round up things here a little bit uh daniel summerskill Says on uh, Monday, there was a lot of chatter about Audi, Volkswagen, Volkswagen Audi Group buying McLaren, sort of denied by Zach Brown. 
would uh, what would the implications be on the Air McLaren SP team if such a sale would take place? Could it lead to Audi building engines for them instead of relying on Chevrolet? Uh, the person who wrote that story is is normally spot on. I can't say whether he is or is not here. Truly, I have no. I haven't wasted any time to investigate. I truly have had other things I got to do. I'm told that there's nothing to this. I'm also told by some others who I won't name who might know a thing or two that they've been hearing about this for a long time. I don't mean years, but although the story came out within the last week, they've been hearing about this internally for months. Where does the truth fall? I don't know. The idea of McLaren being sold, someone buying it outright, uh, in this case, an auto manufacturer, it does seem non-McLaren-ish. It would be weird for such a storied brand to be wholly owned by an auto manufacturer who would, whether immediately or in a brief amount of time, you would think, uh, replace that name with their own. So that just is, it's a weird concept, Daniel, that I, for reasons with this team, if we're talking about, Hey, they're buying Alpha Tori, you go, all right, cool. They obviously have some history, but no one's going to cry because the Alpha Tori name has gone away. Say McLaren's a lot different. So that stands out as a negative in the, is this real or is this not have heard? about money woes for a little while could that factor into something could this be f1 related could there be some sort of collaboration here again i don't know i just know that there are enough things moving forward elsewhere you mentioned the indycar team whether it's building a new shop trying to expand or planning to expand to three cars and could you sign this person could you hire that person whatever the kinds of things that you would say are taking place at the moment with future-minded building and development. They recently took right that 75% ownership in Aero McLaren SP. These are the kinds of things where if you are on the clock to be acquired by someone, you would not be doing those things. The messiness of the hey i know you want to spend a trillion zillion dollars to buy us but we've got all kinds of contracts out all kinds of things being built and developments going on and these things would need to be settled most likely before anyone would want to buy because they would need to know exactly what they're buying any debts that they would have any contracts that they would be assuming right just saying it's not impossible but usually when you have something of this magnitude, a sale of this magnitude possibly happening, you don't see the entity that's about to be purchased doing all the other business-related items that would complicate such a transaction. So uh, what's interesting to me is there have not been a flurry of follow-up stories on this. When we had the Andretti-Sauber F1 thing, my gosh, <laughs> seems like there were 10 new stories a day about this from wherever in the planet. And it was a huge thing. 
everybody diving in on it, offering their thoughts and blah, 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 blah. What's been interesting to me is I haven't seen that take place here. And so that also leads me to wonder how real this might be. Granted, famous last words, Daniel, maybe this gets announced tomorrow, but uh, yeah, doesn't jump out so much to me as, as maybe being a, as big of a deal as it might have been presented as, but famous last words. Uh, J.J. Gertler, you ask, who owns car numbers? I mentioned in NASCAR, each team owns its numbers, but if nobody's using, say, the 22 next year, is it up for grabs? Somebody have to ask IndyCar if they can use it. They have to buy it from the team that they want to get it from. How does it all work? Those are indeed the, uh, the property of IndyCar. It's a little bit of a what grandfathering legacy thing going on you could almost say like scott dixon number nine it's not going to change that's his number that's who he is will power he's number 12 it's not going to change etc etc there is a situation where if the 22 is not being used without a doubt that is something that uh, someone can request from indycar to make use of i mean the 22 was once what too long ago a dry and reinbold number right i i seem to recall i'm if i'm wrong i apologize but that stands out as something i recall from what early 2010s something like that maybe late 2000s but that went into the uh, the pool of available numbers and uh, we now associate that with simon pagino but simon's no longer there so i would say that uh, in theory, is up for someone to grab. Uh, Jerry Sudeth, how you doing, Jerry? We're going to move on to a fine young driver by the name of Kyle Kirkwood asking, what are the reasonable expectations for Kyle at AJ Foyt? What can he do there to prove himself to the big three? And uh, yeah, there's a follow-up question here from Mike Matt, 5150. Early pick for rookie of the year. Boy, this is going to be interesting. Uh, Jerry, let's start with yours first. Honestly, Kyle's expectations will be set by whomever they hire as his race engineer, whomever they put in place as technical director, and what kind of progress they make during the offseason with engineering R&D. These are the things that, without trying to speak out of turn too much, there were big, I don't know, promises. Uh, Hey, we're going to do a lot of stuff to make the 14 car from an engineering standpoint as good as it's ever been. It's we're, we're going all in big opportunity last season. Let's just say some of those things didn't happen. Uh, Let's say that the race engineer for the car got frustrated enough to say, got an opportunity elsewhere. I'm going to go take it. It was a great opportunity, but uh, this is the area where they need to prove themselves, Jerry. Hiring a Bourdais, hiring a Kirkwood, which are two drivers we know, badasses. Seb had two fifth-place finishes. One was a little lucky, but 
this is a situation nonetheless where there was with a guy of Bourdais talent and experience, they massively under delivered last year, last season. Seb also, there are some races where Seb didn't have wonderful races. So it's not like he, you know, and he admits it outright. It's not like it's all on the team by any means, at least for what they said they were going to do to try and improve themselves though. Uh, there were not some of those things done. And as a result, you saw the team not really make any massive gains across the season. You now have Seb's great race engineer gone. Technical director, more or less retiring, stepping back. So Kyle Kirkwood, who I think we would all agree has shown, given us enough belief that dropped into a Andretti Ganassi, Penske, whatever, can probably win at least a race, maybe two next year as a rookie. He's now at a team that was among the lower lowest performers and now has significant engineering vacancies. And without those engineers in place and their plans, what kind of off-season R&D to find little nuggets of speed to keep up with or outperform some of the other teams when will that happen? How will that happen? How much money is there to make that happen? Big questions. We are in the middle, just past the midway point of November, chair. Season starts end of February. It's not a lot of time. So I mention these things because unless we're talking about a well-known race engineer leaving a team and coming to work for them and hopefully bringing a lot of very current knowledge, to make the car fast, I would say reasonable expectations for Kyle are going to be modest. And it's not because of him. So as I wrote in the mailbag, uh, the racer mailbag, which I hope some of you are reading uh, since I'm doing the majority of it now. um, However, Kyle goes in 2022 will be based solely upon the Foyt team and the quality of engineering uh, they put around him. If we assume the mechanics are all awesome and do great pit stops, right? If we just say all that's going to be great, truly just the engineering side is where you're going to have to level up, measure up, and, and whatnot. If they can bring in talent there, real talent there, to backfill what they've lost, Jerry, we can have higher expectations for Kyle's uh, overall performances without that. I don't think so. Uh, as for what does he have to do there to prove himself to the big three? I don't think he has to do a thing, Jerry. Uh, as I wrote in the mailbag, I will be shocked if Kyle is there more than a year. Everything I have heard tells me he will be headed back to Andretti in 2023. Honda was simply unable to provide a fifth full-time engine lease. They're maxed out. They don't have any more engines to offer. Uh, They would actually have to make, go and manufacture new engines to support that for the full season. Knowing that this engine formula is coming to an end at the end of 2022, it'd be a massive waste of time uh, and money. So, yeah, I would say pencil in Kirkwood at Andretti in 2023, um, period. I'll be shocked if that isn't the case. As for Rookie of the Year, 
we will have to uh, hashtag wait and see who all emerges to complete the rookie lineup. I would say if you're wanting to hedge your bets a little bit, I mean, if you're looking beyond Christian Lundgaard, uh, don't. Know that he's talented. Know that he has a lot to learn, right? Obviously, he's been to one track so far, the Indy Road Course, but the team he is driving for and his talent combined should put him on on pole for Rookie of the Year. I think Callum Eilat, assuming Hunko's hauling a racing, can bulk up and improve its engineering staff. Callum has the talent to be Rookie of the Year, no question. Same thing I kind of mentioned about Kyle. Put the, the smart brains on the timing stand, and a driver can just fly. They can sing and be rock stars. Miss those folks? Uh, not so much. Looking at the landscape, RLL, uh, I think Lingard is going to do enough, at least on the road and street courses. Maybe not the ovals to blow us away. Who knows? We'll have to see. But I think his performances across road and street courses should be enough to get him rookie of the year. Let's keep going here with our man, Austin Sutton. says, is there any interest from another manufacturing company to create IndyCars? I think Delara versus Areca would be just as interesting as Honda versus Chevy. Would allow teams to mix and match the options. Would Penske ever allow this? Well, our man, Jay Fry, IndyCar president, has already told us Delara will make the next car. So while I do come from an era where spec cars were not a thing and somewhat ill-fitting uh yeah i don't know if we're going back in time austin to a place where a second third or fourth chassis manufacturer will even be asked to tender a possibility of doing something so yeah uh ain't happening although i did back in the day I think 2012, beginning of 2012, maybe. I forget exactly when. Might have been 2011. Did connect IndyCar president Randy Bernard with Hugh DeShonak, uh, who is Areca. Connected the two of them during the 12 hours of Sebring and uh, sat in with them on the meeting because my friends at Areca had expressed an interest in doing a aero kit. Keep in mind that while IndyCar announced we would be doing aero kits leading into the new formula in 2012, that was delayed, then delayed, then delayed. Finally happened for 2015, but again, back three, four years earlier, it was a concept, not a reality. Uh, Areca was interested, did get them together, sat in with them, and obviously that was all kind of kept between ourselves, but... I'd love to see Eureka get in. They're really good. They're great people. They're really smart, and uh, they're a lot of fun. But alas, eh, not happening, my friend. Uh, Jeremy Davis, the world's biggest Scott Dixon fan. How you doing, Jeremy? Says MP, praying all is well at home for yourself, your wife, and the cats. The cats are getting prayers. Wow. Thanks, Jeremy. Says, I've always wondered uh, why the IMS Museum doesn't have the current year's Indy 500 winning car on display until the following may also what is the uh, why doesn't the museum have more of the past any 500 winning cars in their collection always wish they could display more of those winners over the years 
uh, says all the best. Uh, thank you, wife, for her, your wife for her service in the military, and happy belated Veterans Day. Thanks again, brother. Well, yeah, NASCAR seems a little bit different on this topic. Where if you win the Daytona 500, uh, I don't know whatever legal mechanism they use or whatever agreement is in place, but yes, that car does indeed go into whatever the uh, the NASCAR museum or Daytona museum, whatever it is. It's an automatic thing. Difference here, obviously they manufacture uh, their cars. Teams manufacture their cars. Know that that's all changing, but regardless, team will use how many cars during a year? Five, seven, eight, I don't know, have specific cars like Super Speedway and, and Short Oval and Road Course and they got a lot of cars in IndyCar. They don't got a lot of cars. <laughs> it's not a case where teams can just say, sure, take it. We'll go make another one. Most teams have a primary car, a backup car. There may be a, a third chassis floating around somewhere, but the vehicle, I rose, who just jumped over my shoulder, uh, definitely have a case where, that car that did win the Indy 500 is going to be used again the following year. Could be used during speedway testing at the end of the year, say Firestone tire test. Could be used depending on the schedule. There could be another super speedway uh, in years past that we would be going to where that vehicle would be used. So that's the big difference here. Uh, we did have what? Alexander Rossi's. 100th Indy 500 winner, the 2016 Andretti Autosport Delara Honda go up for auction, and that is in the museum at Dan Weldon's car, the 100th anniversary of the 500, that from 2011 uh, going in as well. But yeah, and I seem to recall some others being lent maybe, but not definitely staying in the collection for the year. I do think with some new life infused into the museum leadership changes and such money being spent we just saw that bobby ray hall's 86 any 500 winner being purchased brought in bob driving it up to uh up to the steps here recently i think you're going to see a greater effort jeremy for the museum to take possession of more of these cars i just would not expect it to be the hey you just won it's posed for photos then we're just going to keep rolling that car into the museum. I don't think we're going to see that here anytime soon. Kurt Pose, how are you, my man? Kurt being a uh, volunteer corner worker, one of the truly great folks, great collections of people in our sport, asks, what is the difference in types of data and depth of data available between cars that share an engine manufacturer? are part of a technical alliance and our teammates also extends a happy birthday to our cat Rocky and sometimes co-host Kurt mentions uh, everything is available if that's agreed upon in a technical alliance. I guess we would be talking about here, say the Meyershank racing collaboration with Andretti auto sport uh, that comes at a significant price tag. First of all, so 
It's not about buddy, buddy. It's not about, Hey, could you do me a favor? And, and we could use a little bit of info. This is a true serious financial transaction, like run a full season of indie lights for a year type transaction. Like it's real money. So just want to overstate that a bit, Kurt. So we fully understand that this is buying of information, buying of an alliance, because those are the terms that were set, and there has certainly been proven value in it. Would Andretti Autosport say, hey, here's access to our main server that has all of our chassis setups, engineering data, aero this, seven post rig data driver here's everything that we've ever gathered in a digital standpoint going back to 20 years ago however long and the team is under different name different whatever but here's access to everything we've ever done i think that might not be part of what we're talking about more of a while we've been in partnership here's all the information for you to look at from our cars our drivers, our everything, right? So you can study up, brush up, see what we've done. Uh, also keep in mind that the engineers on the shank cars have been supplied by Andretti Autosport. So you do have a lot of knowledge here, a lot of discussions, debriefs that take place, Kurt. So this is something where there's really no off-limits areas that I can think of that would have been established in terms of if we started working together on January 1st in 2000, such and such, everything going forward from that would be available. Uh, anything before, that'd be a big surprise. And if there was a need for whatever reason to look at some of that historical data, I'm guessing that would probably come uh, with a price tag attached. So genuinely... Uh, this would include everything because all of the performance-related information, all the chassis tuning options, hey, on the 26 car, they did this with rear geometry in this session. And on the 27 car, they did another thing with rear geometry. And hey, on our number 60 car, we did something else with the front geometry. You want to go back and look and say, oh, okay, here's not only what they did, the change that they made or changes, but here's what came from that in terms of lap time, driver comment, uh, comments about it, yay or nay. Uh, look at what you did uh, with your car at the front. Maybe do you consider making, trying what the 26 car did at the next session with that rear geometry or maybe what the 27 car did? It's that kind of thing. So can't really wall that stuff off in a true technical alliance because all of a sudden you're limiting yourself in knowledge. So, uh, yeah, it's also just to close here, Kurt, it seems like a fantastic idea that more teams should do. And yet they don't. The reasons are many fold. A lot of them involve not outright fear, but just, Hey, I really don't want to let folks in to see what we have. Uh, we've spent a lot of money to develop what we have and not so comfortable just making that free for uh, even if it's a paying partner to dive into. Um, There's some folks that just say straight up, no, never. 
this is ours and I don't care what price tag you put on it. You can't have it. Keep in mind, there's a little bit of a thing here, Kurt, on since we've had this Delar DW12 chassis for quite a while, even if the relationship were to sever after one season, car is going to be used for a while. A few more years, I think, although there's a, a push by some to say change it now. Know that we're going to a new engine package here a year from now. There will certainly be a lot of changes to the car where if a relationship went through 22 and stopped uh, that technical alliance, the team paying for the alliance would certainly be out of luck in 2023, right? Uh, that would be a hard time to have that relationship sever. But there is a little bit of a, <clears throat> yeah, I'm letting you pay to see our quote secrets. But even if we come to an end prematurely on this relationship or it lasts a short amount of time, you can still benefit from this. So granted, these relationships tend to be two, three years contractually, if not more. So that doesn't happen. But just saying, it's one of those fears of like, oh, we let them in and you can never really put the toothpaste back on the tube if and when things uh, fall apart or we just mutually decide part ways. Uh, let's see, Cody Oakwood. As I sip the last of my morning coffee, or almost the last, Sam P with several IndyCar owners also fielding teams at IMSA. Should the owners come up with a combined point system that incorporate both series? I love this idea, Cody. He says the winner would get a gift of their choosing from each of the losers. <laughs> this is even better. Shank will get a truckload of Bush Light from each loser. Ray Hall will get a lifetime uh, hair club membership. Chip would get Target gift cards. Penske would get more video screens to install at IMS. What are your thoughts? I love this idea, Cody. And I love the fact that this is more of a wager among team owners spread across both compared to just, you know, some form of formal point system. And, you know, yeah, you win, but, you know, it's it's more the who wins being the bragging rights and, and who came out as champion. I don't think I, either one of any of those involved here would care about that as much as just wanting to have the other team owners hand deliver uh, the, 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 the losing bounty they would have to bring their way. So I love this idea. I, I am going to highlight this one because I think this one needs, needs more thought put into it. Even if, again, it's just totally informal. Um, let me see if I can get those team owners to buy in on this. And if so, uh, A, I think we might be able to get something going. We would need to come up with some sort of system, point system, as you mentioned, because Shank, obviously IndyCar, but also DPI in IMSA. Ray Hall, IndyCar, but GT next year. He'll be going to prototypes after that. But um, Ganassi, again, so they don't all play in the same class together in IMSA. But regardless, we're going to have to come up with some sort of, of scoring uh, system for this. Maybe y'all could help, Cody. Maybe our Prude listener group um, can come up with a, a points. Points? Points. Um, you want to know what, uh, what that scores. Points scoring system we could adopt uh, so we can truly figure out uh, what, what kind of victor might emerge 
and then also uh, I can reach out to them, find out if they're interested. We know Penske's not going to be involved here really uh, till 2023, but still, we can get this kicked off. And yeah, keeping in mind that we also have drivers that will be doing at least all the long races, the endurance races in the WeatherTech Championship, maybe we could get them in on this too. Some sort of, yeah, uh, everyone having to pay some sort of embarrassing thing if they don't win. So, yeah, love the idea here, Cody. When we go to Tim Glass, uh, says, MP, praying for your wife. Thank you, Tim. Seriously, thank you. Says, do you think an F1-style budget cap would be a viable alternative to the lockdown rule book we have now? Instead of all the chassis development limitations on bodywork, aero, basically everything but dampers, might be more interesting to let teams decide where to invest fixed resources and break a little further out of the spec world. It would also help collapse some of the budget disparities, maybe help better compensate drivers or lower the amount of personal sponsorship necessary to get a ride. Interesting one here, Tim. I got to believe the free market that we have is working. The reason F1's gone to a budget cap is because not only was it free market, it was, is abusively wasteful. It has been forever. So that's nothing new. But when you're spending half a billion dollars or more to play race car per season, I'm not saying that spending five or 10 in IndyCar is better in terms of from a moral standpoint, right? There, how many people could be fed? How many research things could be funded to cure this ill or that, right? So again, we know we can do that. Uh, but I'm just saying, if you're telling me, hey, it costs five to six to run an IndyCar entry for a season compared to hundreds of millions for formula one i get why there's been a push to say let's be a little bit more responsible okay also talking about teams you know what mercedes and i think what ferrari have more a thousand plus employees whereas your average indycar team if we're talking a single car entry is going to be about 20 or less if not way less but you know full-time eight to 10, um, right? Just different hemispheres here, Tim. So that's why we're t- seeing this budget cap coming in. Issue here would be you can't, well, I guess you could try to regulate. I don't know how, but you can't regulate talent. So if you say, well, we're going to have a budget cap, what are we talking? Operating budget, development budget, right? Usually employee budget, I think you get into some real labor laws there by saying, well, you cannot pay this person more than that. Uh, you know, in this this role on a team, you can pay no more than this number. Um, I don't know if that would fly. And so where this ends up being the, the cheat code is there are teams with better engineers, better development folks, better aero folks, better you name it folks. And if just like this spec chassis, just like where everything's locked down to more or less only dampers being the area you can play with, the teams with better people 
and solid enough resources to put behind them are going to perform at a higher level than those who do not have as good a people. I'll keep coming back to this of Dale Coin Racing, Olivier Boisson, race engineer, damper engineer, and his driver, Romain Groschon. They were able to make much bigger teams look very silly more often than not last season. And it's a combination of a decent budget, not great, but decent, excellent driver. Uh, no disrespect to Romain, but if I had the choice of hiring one of those two people for my IndyCar team, I am hiring Mr. Boisson because his talents are something that are truly significant. You can find those that are similar or better than Romain. Not a lot of folks out there like Olivier Boisson who's available for hire. So just saying, could throw in the budget cap, could do all these things. You're still going to have the teams with the better minds outperforming the others as long as they have a decent budget behind them to do that. And even given identical budgets, right? All the teams have the same number for R&D, for blah, blah, blah. Uh, the teams with the best people's going to come out on top. So that's why I just don't think this is really something that we're needing to look into. Um, the spec mindedness, that's just fear, right? I know we talk about, well, budget saves money, right? We, we go to single source, everything. We also lock down testing so you can barely do any of that. And you do all kinds of stuff where you go, all right, we're saving money. And then what do you find? Well, okay, so we can't go onto the racetrack very often. Well, we're going to create these amazing simulators and do tons of sim and do all kinds of off-track testing. Seven-post shaker rigs and this dyno and that, and the, right? The money's going to get spent. Inserting some sort of, of financial police to track every dollar, I, I just think that opens up a can that would be really hard to stay on top of knowing that the the difference between F1 in most of the cases and IndyCar is you have major auto manufacturers attached whether it is their direct factory team or it's a manufacturer that has attached their name to an existing F1 uh, operation there are some big brands involved in IndyCar, everything is owned by a business person. It is someone that has been successful in business or worked their way up from nothing, but these are not giant corporations that own or are attached to the teams. These are folks that have made a lot of money in very creative ways. Where a budget cap on F1, Tim, makes sense to me in terms of being able to enforce, because F1's a giant thing and has tons of money to do that and put the policing in place, you also have these giant corporations who, while they will want to push the boundaries, cannot really afford to be caught cheating here because, again, auto industry, certainly not something that wants to stand out as acting out yet again. IndyCar? <laughs> a lot of self-made people. Yeah. Uh, let's just say they have, some of them have probably made their money by 
being very creative and pushing lots of boundaries and not having the same kind of spotlight and scrutiny placed on them while doing it. So put a budget cap on top of them. Oh, yes. I think we are. It'd be like one of our favorite shows at home, uh, Billions on Showtime. I think we would have some of the crazy hijinks and whatnot that take place there on skirting rules and laws and regulations uh, by the very wealthy. I think it'd just be Billions IndyCar edition. Riley Stricker. How you doing, Riley? Should mention I appreciate your uh, your recent jumping in and participating in the show on a regular basis. Basis? Basis. I'm not editing any of this. Some of you know I refer to this show as my unpolished turd. Certainly not polished, but my unpolished turd. I leave in all the mistakes because, well, it's an accurate representation of who I am. Uh, we're going to go to Riley Stricker. Thank you. And he asks, possibly she, I'm not sure, haven't looked at your avatar. Not that it matters. Uh, hey, Marshall, what are your pros and cons of DRS and Formula One versus IndyCar's push to pass? So I like the idea of pushing competitiveness with, t- with them, but I'm wondering about your take on one versus the other. Uh, never cared for either one, Riley. DRS turned out to be a pretty interesting thing that Formula One adopted or created adopted whatever you want to however it should be phrased it really was a case prior to drs where qualifying was the race wherever you qualified was more or less where the finishing order was going to be passing virtually impossible highly complex aerodynamics making a lot of dirty air for trailing cars therefore making it really hard to pass uh, not having the stability, in particular with the front of the car, to dive down uh, on the inside of a corner or braking or otherwise. So very processional. Could still argue Formula One is a bit processional, but uh, I understand DRS. I don't necessarily love it. Never really loved it, but I know that without it, boy, these races would be stinkers. So... Get within a second of the car in front of you, uh, 0.99999 or less. DRS is activated at the next DRS deployment zone. I would like to see things more driver deployed. And I realize that there's the risk for mayhem here. The places where Formula One decides DRS can be activated on the straights got it where they open the rear flap up uh, top wing element and then close it gives a nice top speed boost allows some overtaking to happen get all that tends to happen in a bit of a safe manner though where it automatically and electronically is opened and then automatically and electronically closed my thought here with drs if i could insert myself into its application would be it is a button it is something where drivers use it as often as they want and push risk possibly do i close that flap while in a straight line straight line braking do i keep it open a tad bit as i start to brake trail brake and i'm turning a bit towards the corner 
and then pop it closed and get that extra downforce at the back of the car, but that's going to unsettle the car a little bit. Put more weight on the back, kind of like a lever, leaning it back. Just, again, just the, the balance, the weight on the tire, shift back, so all of a sudden I get a little bit of understeer, maybe at a point that I don't necessarily want, but maybe that's what helps me make the pass. I don't like the electronic automated side to it. That is a thing where I'm like, okay, you've taken the driver out of this. Obviously, they still have to make a pass. I realize that takes skill, but if you're blowing by somebody like a freaking rocket, you know, uh, the job's been done for you by that little flap uh, being automated. I like the idea of this being in the driver's hands. How far do you want to push things? How soon do you want to activate it coming out of the corner? Is the car fully stable and planted, or will popping it early cause some instability? Would, might you get sideways spin? I don't know. But if you've got someone hot on your tail and you want to try and pop it, or you've got someone that you're rushing up on, and again, I don't know about the one second thing. Uh, that's why, again, I, I like the idea of if you're going to have it, then let them use it. Let the uh, the best drivers try and deal with the chassis imbalance and the thing not being planted at all times because maybe they open it earlier than uh, is totally safe and use it, deploy it later into the braking zone or the corner, then it's totally lock solid safe. Let's see that. That to me, Riley, would be spicy. The push to pass in IndyCar where we do have uh, that, freedom given it's interesting but rarely is it enough of a horsepower bump to go whoa we're flying by like drs so there are times where we see push to pass really help not so much in the getting by one another i would say it seems more often than not that we don't see someone who triggered push to pass being able to just motor on by and get that position. What it does do in a positive way that I do like is the name, the driver, Colton Herta, uh, Pato Ward. You had a terrible qualifying for whatever reason. Uh, you're starting 25th. They are on the button constantly to make up ground and get back into the fight without that ability on road and street courses. I don't know if that would be so much of an option, Riley. So I do like that capability, but if I had to choose one or the other for the next IndyCar chassis, I'd say let's do DRS, but let's do away with zones. Let's trust our drivers to be smart enough to deploy uh, when and where they feel they can and is advantageous. Granted, I don't know if we're going to wear out the... Uh, the uh, the DRS quote motors <laughs> with the thing constantly opening and closing and opening and closing. But like, if you're going to have a thing that allows passing or at least allows the opportunity for passing through uh, greater arrow efficiency, you know, go for it. I'd like the idea of the chaser and the chasey not having to wait for the one second or whatever. Like, look, Let's have a, a DRS duel. Two of you flying down the straight, going into that sharp first corner. Who's going to hold out the longest before they close that flap? Who's going to get that extra microsecond of arrow advantage to try and uh, stay in their lead, if we're talking about the leader here in that situation, or to get by? Like, 
we're going to make it a thing, make it a thing. Steve Bonek. Hey, Steve. Says, uh, hey, MP, hope your wife and the kitties are doing great. I love the fact that the cats keep getting mentioned. Uh, says, been trying to watch F1 for uh, recent races in U.S. time zones. I've not watched much Formula One, though. I found the virtual safety car interesting. Is that something IndyCar could and should do? Definitely worth a thought, isn't it? Now, granted, I always feel compelled to mention this because it's real. It's not, it's not a made-up thing. Roger Penske is worth a lot of money. Roger Penske's money is not necessarily IndyCar's money to freely spend. So when we talk about enabling or setting up a, uh, a full virtual safety car system and all of the, uh, all of the electronics, the lights, the, this, the, the everything that uh, is needed to install that system at track to track to track to track. Um, I do wonder if that is something that could be afforded. I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't pretend to know exactly what it costs, but at least when I've asked in the past, I've been told that it is not an insignificant, uh, insignificant amount of money. So again, F1 can afford this. The FIWEC uses this. This is a very European, uh, Europeanly common uh, system. I do think it's something that IndyCar should seriously consider if they can afford it. And if they can, the idea of not going full course yellow when so-and-so pulls off on the side of the road, um, maybe that's not the worst thing. Maybe setting up sectors, again, where one corner or two corners before to whatever the next corner station past the problem is the virtual safety car area where you are slowing. I like the idea of just using the pit lane speed limiter. Now, granted, could that be, could there be a secondary one that's maybe at a slightly higher speed? I don't know. Um, I don't like the asking drivers to slow X amount percent uh, like we see in Formula One because having drivers doing math while driving a race car is not usually something you want to do. But I do like this idea. And I do think it would keep the show moving um, in more instances for sure. So love it. Just not sure, Steve, if IndyCar would indeed go that direction. They've been asked many times. I've asked Jay. I've gotten a kind of the the pat. Well, we're looking. You know, we'll look at it, and we've we've spoken about it, but uh, never get a firm answer. Kevin DeVries, and you don't even ask about the cats, Kev. Man, I. I thought we were friends. Uh, he says, with Chip Ganassi selling his NASCAR team to Justin Marks and Pitbull, uh, will we notice trickle-down of those funds reinvested in his IndyCar IMSA entries? If so, what form would it likely show up as? Re-upping key personnel, hiring new people, replacing or upgrading physical assets, saving it for later, and the inevitable expenses with a new hybrid power unit? Interesting question here, Kev. So... Chip Ganassi has been good at business. He has been very successful in business. Definitely the type of guy to invest in his team if he sees the need for investment. But his business in motor racing is getting others to pay for it. 
That's kind of the common thing in motor racing. You want a sponsor or a driver, whomever, to pay for your team to operate. And so I would say Chip selling his cup team would not be something that to him says, well, hey, now I've got a bunch of my own money that I can now get rid of by putting it into my other teams. I would say that without a doubt, if there is a new thing, some sort of R&D device, some sort of testing device that could be purchased, that would improve the overall competitiveness of everything Chip does across what Extreme E, IndyCar, and IMSA, I would say that might be a consideration. Him saying, hey, I've got a bunch of cash all of a sudden. Where can I spend it within my team? I don't know if that's what most team owners would do, separating the individual from their business. So in theory... I don't think Chip's mindset would have vastly altered from got PNC Bank, NTT Data, Cadillac, we've got this, we've got that, we've got Carvana, we've got all these companies spending, which is what makes us operate and then go compete. So wouldn't put this down, Kev, as money burning a hole in his pocket. Where does he put that into the team? I'm guessing that would probably be invested in other things that would offer verified returns, financial returns. Uh, Dan Rice, as we start to get down to uh, the last couple of questions here, it says, MP, got a question about motorsports in general that relates to IndyCar. Seeing Felipe Massa at the uh, Sao Paulo Grand Prix in Brazil this weekend got me wondering, where have all the great Brazilian drivers gone? Uh, says for several decades, there were always several Brazilians at the highest level of motorsports around the world. Nowadays, apart from Elio's Indy 500 win, uh, Felipe Nazar and Pippo Durrani winning the IMSA DPI title this weekend, Brazil seems woefully underrepresented from years past. No Brazilians in F1, no full-time Brazilian IndyCar drivers. What's led to this drought for a once great motoring nation? Yet another solid, solid question here from you dan thanks for sending this couple things because i have asked elio i've asked young mr tony canon same thing hey where's all the youngins coming behind you guys and obviously kiko porto would be the first name that we mentioned having just won the usf 2000 title so we will see him graduating to indy pro 2000 hopefully kiko uh, is one of the answers to this question here in the very, very near future would say of what I have been told by my Brazilian driver friends and their related friends and such, it's just been the big downturn in the economy for the last long, long time. Is there money to have drivers competing in Brazil? Yes. Is there, if it's not family money, are there companies willing to step up and sponsor young Brazilian boy or girl, whomever, on the road to Indy? Not so much. And it's been that way for a little bit. There have been some young Brazilian talents to come along and spend a little while with us in IndyCar, right? Rafa Matos comes to mind. Mateus Laced here somewhat recently. Um, 
There have been others on the open wheel side. Not many, though, that we would say have had much in the way of permanence. So to your point, I hate it. Uh, love Brazilians have ever since got to know TK and Elio, some others that I've worked with before. Uh, it's a tradition that I hope is not fading. We're going to have, as you mentioned, Elio full-time this season, but if this ends up being his last full-time run in IndyCar, will we have anyone to continue that tradition the following year uh, it's it's looking unlikely right now so back to kiko come on man uh go do great in indy pro 2000 get to indy lights and then come join us so we can keep the streak going here but bigger question bigger bigger topic here does indycar with the race for equality and change and it's now reclaiming of indy lights that it's running is this a, a thing where Roger, granted, we ask Roger to do a lot, so it wouldn't necessarily be Roger directly, but uh, do we ask Penske Entertainment, hey, what can we do? Do we lean on a Christian Fittipaldi? Who might we lean on? Do we lean on a Canon to help uh, identify and absolutely make sure that... Um, we have this pipeline remain open. How can we identify talent? How can we get Christian? How can we get Tony? How can we get whomever to say, yep, uh, here's, here she is, here she is, here's someone to get behind. It's an important, it's an important piece of tradition, I would say, for us. So um, it's always easy to spend other people's money. I think they should do this. Please do that and spend your own money. But at least it's uh, a thought that comes to mind here. Um uh, our pal Stathis Coco, who normally sends in stuff for the weekend sports car show, asks, how on earth are Felipe Nasr and Pippo Durrani not on the IndyCar radar every year? They would be a great addition on the grid and a fast one. I definitely agree, Stathis. Uh, we'll mention, just because he's moving on to other things, so the door's kind of closed on IndyCar with young Mr. Nasr, but uh, was doing what I could to help him with connections here or there. If I heard about something opening up, hey, go talk to this IndyCar team owner, whatever else. Obviously, he did a little bit of testing with Carlin here a couple of years ago. Um, nothing came of that. I, If he weren't headed to a factory sports car program, I would say he should certainly be on multiple radars because we are going to have a few significant seats likely opening up here in the next year, definitely the next year or two. So yeah, but a factory sports car deal from a finance standpoint, stability standpoint, probably going to be a smarter call. Uh, as for Pippo, he tested with Schmidt Peterson a while back. I did not hear great, great things about that test, meaning he blew everybody away. Um, it's interesting when I think of Pippo I think of a kid who is a dogged racer and fighter I don't know if I think of him as a single lap mesmerizing star we're talking about differences in what 
folks are looking for across each series, Pippo's talent is a perfect fit for sports cars, endurance racing in particular. Is it blinding one lap speed in qualifying an IndyCar, which is then going to greatly improve uh, the potential of your finishing position in the race? I don't know if he has that reputation. Granted, we could say Graham Rahal, not a great qualifier, admits it. Usually starts farther back than anyone would want. Is a heck of a racer and fights his way forward every time. It's also been a couple years since he won a race because IndyCar has become so deep that even if you're starting ninth, you can fight your way to third, second, whatever. But getting that win sure is tough. Just saying here, I think Pippo would probably be someone who races like mad in IndyCar and impresses people, but I wonder if he'd be more the Graham Rahal model than a Colton Herta, uh, Polo, Rossi, whatever, starting at or near the front or on pole and staying there. So, yeah, but I'm with you. J.J. Gertler, you asked the final question above the yellow line of death. Uh, we, the, the red line of death is is even farther below. Um, it has been long enough since you were a team member. Can you now tell us about the coolest cheat you ever ran on one of your Indy cars? <sighs> Wasn't a lot of cheating there. I got to admit, I mentioned this before on the, I mentioned it might've been a couple of years and I'll just share it again briefly. The one time I hashtag me personally intentionally cheated and it was in concert with our engine builder. It was wanting to see if the Indy racing league was paying attention. So I think it was Charlotte maybe the 97 Charlotte IRL race, uh, we were convinced that the uh, Menards team, Tony Stewart's team, that they were running above the rev limit. I believe it was 10,500 RPMs. I believe that's what the uh, series enforced rev limit was. We were convinced, uh, particularly in qualifying, that they were over 11.5 because they're, Oldsmobile V8 sure sounded like it was revving, like we were hearing a pitch coming from it that we sure as heck didn't hear from ours or others. And so uh, our, I forget his name, John something from NAC Engines in uh, Greater Chicago, um, uh, I think it was John Meyer maybe, said, well, hey, let's let's go to 11. We're going to do a spinal tap. We're going to 11. And so I went in through the GM uh, ECU. Was it Bosch? Delphi. I think it was Delphi. Anyways, I went in and just changed our maximum, changed the value from 10,500 to 11,000. Now, we didn't necessarily gear the car to try and get that extra 500 RPM, but we at least wanted to see both A, if the thing would pull beyond 10,500, on our qualifying run, and B, if the IRL would notice. Answers to the questions, no and yes. So, no, I think we, and we missed, if I recall, a little bit on setup, so the car wasn't exactly singing and raging off of the corners to then pull 
big RPMs by the end of the straights. But off the top of my head, JJ, I think we pulled like 10.3, maybe 10,350, right? But we were definitely 100, 150 RPMs below the rev limit through our entire qualifying run. Well, we come onto pit lane and uh, they stop the car that being the IRL officials, I think it was USAC officials, but anyways, the IRL stopped the car and plugged right in, and they did this to all cars, plugged in, they had no real access to the Pi onboard data system, but they did have access to the ECUs. And so plugged in, saw that our value was 11,000, and a lot of arm waving, and oh, cheat, 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 cheat. And that's when we told them, yes, we did it intentionally. Uh, you've never seen it from us before, but we did this intentionally because we wanted to see if you, honestly, if you were paying attention because we don't believe the, uh, the Menards team is indeed uh, being accurate, fair, and blah, blah, blah. And they saw, pulling up the data, not just the, the, the number that I plugged in, but looking at the date itself, that we did indeed never exceed 10,500. So while we were afoul of the rules with the setting being beyond the limit, we did not actually exceed the limit. And so we got off with a warning. We told them, like, look, uh, you can your ears tell you that car is not <laughs> below 10,500. Well, hey, look, look, we plug in, blah, 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 and we see... Just like we see with yours, so uh, everything's good. <clears throat> Learned from one of the, or I should say the data engineer, uh, electronics expert, the person doing all that stuff for them, a few years later, that yes, they indeed had two ECUs. <laughs> they had one that was functioning and uh, uh, delivering inaccurate information for the league to plug into and see and go, oh, yep, all's good. Uh, they had another one hidden away in the car that was indeed controlling the engine. Um, so yeah, there's that. But uh, that's about the biggest one that comes to mind. There were a couple other things that have that have come to mind while I've been uh, recounting this that they actually aren't meant for sharing. Uh, nothing crazy big, but still, eh, I'll keep those to myself. Uh, all right, I'm gonna go look below the red line of death, a uh, yellow line of death here, and. Uh, see uh what i might pick up before i say goodbye oh and i do need to say goodbye quickly because we've got to leave in 18 minutes for uh, an afternoon of my wife's appointments um b johnson 203 from reddit not sure if i've read a question from you before so if not thank you save this to ask again during the off season who regrets not going to penske more ryan hunter Ray or alexander rossi uh, does rossi maybe still end up there would say definite possibility on rossi I'd say Hunter Ray probably because yeah, at Penske, while he did have very serious success with Andretti, things tapered off a bit. I don't know if things taper off a bit if uh, he was with Penske this entire time. Uh, Ted Nesbitt, he said, based on your reporting that Hinch was driving somewhat injured for most of the season, does he get a serious Indy 500 look from a decent team, say an Andretti or a Ray Hall? Uh, we know that the Andretti team is looking for big dollars, uh, while Bob is also uh, looking for big dollars. So those two would 
probably not be the places unless Hinch is sitting on, you know, a great sponsor that wants to get behind it. I would say one of the medium-sized teams, smaller to medium-sized teams, if we're talking about having an extra car and making an offer, would be the places to offer Hinch something. Um, Vincent1701. How you doing, Vincent? Says, if I was dumb and rich enough to buy an old Indy car for vintage racing, could I even get tires or an engine for the thing? Says, thinking 95 through 2005. Uh, yes, you could. Cosworths tend to be something that you can access. Honda, Toyota, Mercedes, and whatnot tend not to make theirs available. And I'm talking more cart than anything. If we're talking IRL, super easy, brother. Super easy. Uh, you can get your Nissans, your Oldsmobiles, your Chevrolets, your you name it. You can get those pretty easy. Tires, yes. Uh, if we're talking about the Pato uh, run last weekend in the old McLaren F1 car, which back in the day ran on groove tires, which nobody really makes anymore. He was running on slicks made by Avon. And if I remember correctly, Avon is owned by Goodyear now, I believe. Um, Goodyear also, I believe, owning Cooper Tires. Uh, there are some definite quality uh, tire manufacturers in the world that supply vintage racing. And keep in mind that... Uh, on rare occasion, Firestone will also step in. Um, but yeah, I would say you'd be okay in both scenarios. So let's both be dumb and rich because I want to join you and do that. Let's go to our pal Equivalent Standard 62, whose name I don't recall uh, from being on the show. So if I have forgotten, I apologize. But if this is your first time, thank you. Uh, Connor from Burlington, Ontario. This is Marshall. Hope your wife is doing well. This is from all the teams uh, that have come and gone. Which do you think have a chance to rise from the ashes for a comeback? For example, Dragon Racing, owned by Jay Penske, coming back from Formula E. Also, I've been going to the Toronto race since I was a kid in 2002. And with the issues of the pits, love to see it move to the backstretch so we can have more cars. Uh, and that beautiful last corner um, returns from back then. Yeah, I got to admit, Connor, the let's let's tighten things up and make it really squirrely and there's so much tire degradation that it's really just a one-line thing because we're trying to jam pits and all kinds of stuff into the final corner complexes i'm not a fan i do love your point about hey there is a lot of room on the back stretch so yeah i wonder i wonder if that could be something indycar considers i don't know if any old-timey teams stand out as as being ready to come back you mentioned dragon for example you know jay penske is all about maximum glamour and spotlight and that's something that i guess he feels that he gets in formula e i'm sure there's lots of money being made there so i can't honestly i can't think of any that would quote come back uh i i my hope is we would have some new folks emerge like don cusick for example who's trying to get in um i hope that that's more the case because if i'm thinking of those who've been here and left I'd rather have those who haven't been here and are clamoring to get in. Uh, let's see. Austin Sutton, do you think any car should adopt an Indy license system that weighs F3 experience higher than F1? That'll show them. Yes. Uh, I'm all about that, Austin. Let's let's adopt pettiness here, too, and uh, definitely try to encourage F3 drivers from Europe to come over by allowing more of them or giving them more points and IndyCar's, quote, licensing system which 
really isn't a thing than F1 drivers. I do love that. that that's actually perfectly petty. All right, friends, uh, going to say farewell for this episode. I think I got to almost all Stacy Hayes. I'm seeing yours. Any updates on Hunkos and Carlin's merger? Uh, sorry, my friend, I don't. That's a call that I need to make. Um, get back to y'all next week, hopefully at a normalish time. Um, if y'all sent in questions that I didn't get to in this episode and you really want me to answer them, send them back in when the call goes out on Monday because this is going up so late that maybe it'll just be like I'm kind of reading your questions a couple days late. Um, appreciate you. Love uh, the time that you take to send it. We have more than 3,000 words of questions. Can I just tell you, and this is, uh, this is honest admission, since I have been doing uh, the racer mailbag and, and that's been uh, coming back and hopefully warmly received, it's not only an honor to be able to do that, but it is a huge honor to see how much you all care about this little show in our little community here that we have built and continue to grow. You sent in more questions for, or let me rephrase that, well, you did send in more questions, but if I'm just talking words that you all spent time to write, more than 3,000 words worth of questions submitted for this episode. That is more than the last, than any mailbag that I've done over the last couple of weeks. I'm sure that'll change, but that'll improve. But that's meaningful to me. It's not a weighing one against the other, good or bad or anything like that. Just saying that the fact that you all take the time each week to create thoughtful stuff, funny stuff, whatever it might be, um, and do that here with me, uh, I really do appreciate you. So for Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Rosie the Cat, who's staring out the window aimlessly, probably found a bird she wants to eat, Rocky, who is sleeping and snoring on the floor behind me like a drunko, going to say thank you. Speak to you next week.